Amen. What a beautiful song. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Daniel. Welcome to the eight o'clock service. <laughs> we always laugh. I, I say, well, we don't need to remind people because everybody's got smartphones that remind them. And then I almost overslept and my family's not even here. So uh, maybe we do need to keep reminding people. Um, we are continuing our series uh, in Luke's gospel, and uh, the reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 13. Uh, we're reading the first nine verses. I'm sorry to say I don't know the, pew, the page number because uh, it was an NIV Bible by me, so I'm reading the ESV version if that's what you have. So uh, again, Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put some manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we want to echo... Uh, this song that our hearts would be awake. Uh, Father, I think of the road to Emmaus as the disciples walked and said, were our hearts not burning with us as he said these things to us? And so we pray, Lord, that as we engage with your word, as we indeed hear the very words of Jesus um, from this section of, of scripture, that our hearts would burn within us, that they would come and transform that they would challenge, that they would equip, uh, Father, that they would uh, do the purpose for which they set out. And so, Father, we commit these next moments to you, uh, that you, your Holy Spirit, would come and do his work in this place, in each of us individually and in, each, in all of us corporately. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How important is the way you view the world? How important is your view of God? How important is your view of yourself? Your opinions and your viewpoints and your understanding bring you to conclusions about different things, whether you recognize that or not. For example, let's say I assume Seth is an angry person. Now, I've chosen Seth because I don't know if I've actually seen Seth get angry, so he's a, he's a safe uh, example. 
But let's say I assume that Seth is an angry person. Uh, Maybe I've seen Seth one time or two times uh, angry in some situation, and I I don't really know him. But based on my small observations, he seems like an angry person. If I am then forced to interact with Seth in, in some capacity, I will be afraid that he's going to be angry with me for some reason. Therefore, I am going to probably try to avoid Seth uh, when possible because I had an incomplete understanding and came to a wrong conclusion. Now, maybe the couple of times that I uh, observed Seth, he he was having a bad day. Maybe he uh, was right to be angry. Maybe it was a righteous anger. The problem is, if I have incorrect information and, and make assumptions based on that incorrect information and, and, and then come to those conclusions, that's not, that's not true. That's not valid. And here's where a lot of people end up with God. Now everyone's going to assume Seth is angry all the time, but uh, this is certainly not the case. I, I reiterate that point. But here's where people end up with God often. They have some understanding of the Creator God, They have some belief of his abilities, but because perhaps they only have a handful of verses or they have no Bible at all, they come to incomplete and wrong conclusions because of incorrect and incomplete understanding. And then they fill in the gaps with their own thoughts. So when something like a natural disaster takes place, we ask, Where's God? Anytime the issue of of suffering and pain arise, people come up with answers. And first, they may try to explain a a divine connection or or, or disconnection. But if they are unsatisfied, then then many eventually lay down at the door of atheism or agnosticism because they cannot bring themselves to an answer that satisfies them. And maybe if you're like me, you've heard this a lot. I cannot believe in a God that fill in the blank. Now, these views are not unrecognized in Scripture. Job's friends uh, say, one of Job's friends says, that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. In, In fact, Job later agrees, saying, man who is born of woman, is short-lived and full of turmoil. Jeremiah says, Why did I ever come from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Others lament over the the seeming uh, distance uh, of God. Again, from Job, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? The psalmist asks, Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David in Psalm 22 expresses his anguish in words later uttered by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The universality of suffering and pain and the seeming indifference to it have many through the millennia asking, why do bad things happen to good people? But that question implies several things. It implies that 
it's, well, first of all, it's a man-centered question. It presumes that man is the center of all things. It presumes that man is good and deserves good. It presumes that God is either all-powerful and not all-good or all-loving, or that he is all-good and all-loving but not all-powerful. Well, the Bible gives us a different perspective, that God is at the center as creator and, and author and sustainer of life, that man is fallen in his very nature. No one is truly good because uh, there's no man that does not sin, 1 Kings chapter 8. There is no one who does good, Psalm 14. No one can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin, Proverbs 20. There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And since all have sinned, Romans 3, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, then everyone deserves death. So the real question is not, why do bad things happen to good people, but rather, why do good things happen to bad people? The very fact shows us the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God to undeserving sinners. But we also know that redeemed sinners still live in a fallen world. Therefore, bad things still happen to believers. But unlike what happens to unbelievers, when believers experience the same troubles, they are not judgments, but trials that benefit us spiritually and bring honor to God. Now, some of the reasons that Scripture says God allows, uh, allows these four believers are, one, to test the validity of our faith. Not for his benefit, because he already knows our hearts, but it's for our benefit. Peter tells us, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows uh, bad things to happen to his people to teach us not to be dependent on ourselves, but to be dependent on divine resources. Paul writes, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Pain and suffering remind us of our heavenly hope. Again, Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Pain and suffering also teaches us obedience. The psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Pain and suffering show us uh, uh, God's compassion 
from 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the, the God who comforts us in all our affliction and it better equips us for, for comforting others through their trials as that very verse from 2 Corinthians continues. Uh, the God who comforts us in all affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. But the people in Jesus' day weren't thinking this way. They were thinking that hardship and catastrophe and suffering, these were signs of God's judgment on sin. And like Job's friend who keep uh, insisting that he has some secret sin that he has yet to confess and refuses to confess, or like in uh, John chapter 9 when the disciples ask Jesus in relation to the man who is born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? All the, their theology is incomplete and, 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 and it's not equating. So let's look at the passage again for this morning together. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Okay, so Jesus has just taught this crowd, if you remember from the past few weeks, he, he's just taught this crowd on, on peace and division, uh, on interpreting the times. Uh, he's taught on, on settling accounts with God. So the concept of judgment is on their minds. And so they ask about something that happened recently in their news, uh, as we often do, and they say, Essentially, did you hear about the Galileans who were killed while they were worshiping? What a terrible thing to take place. Tragic. It's why Pilate has such a terrible reputation for his wickedness. We don't know why these Galileans were killed, but we do know that Josephus, the Jewish historian, does have records of such acts by Pilate. Because Jesus is showing Israel... Uh, showing that Israel will not be saved because of its ethnicity, that just being a Jew saves you. He's, not, he's showing them that that's not the case, uh, as they may perhaps have thought. It, it's rather about the individual in the sense that there's individual responsibility. There's a need for an individual response, an individual, as we're going to see in a, a few moments, repentance, confession, forgiveness, all these things. So maybe the people are, are challenging this with questions along this messianic line, right? Because they've heard Jesus use messianic language, and, and maybe they're trying to rile him up against the Romans. Uh, did you hear about this horribly wicked, what this horribly wicked pagan did to our people? Doesn't that upset you and make you want to overthrow them? But what's more amazing is that Jesus offers no verdict on Pilate, a, a man he will most certainly be facing in the near future, as we, as we know. But rather, he takes the opportunity to teach again on this issue of individual response, the need for this individual response. 
So when he finishes by saying, no, I tell you, he has caught the Jewish people off guard, the, the, the thousands that are gathered, because this goes against their conventional theological wisdom. According to these people, these Galileans slaughtered were worse than the others in the temple, and even worse than all of the people in Galilee. Now we have to say here that it is true that sometimes God immediately judges sinners for specific sins, even in their own history, uh, Achan being stoned for stealing and lying. Uh, Korah being swallowed up by the earth for denying Aaron and Moses' authority. And there is uh, also built-in judgment for, for sinful behavior. We think of uh, uh, you know, a sexually immoral lifestyle will eventually lead to sexually transmitted disease. Uh, a criminal behavior often leads to um, a violent death. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not referring to the inevitable consequences of sin, but rather to catastrophic events that fall on people seemingly without discrimination. Throughout history, accidents, natural disasters, crime, war have killed unbelievers at all points of the moral spectrum and believers. For the unbelievers, we know from Jesus' teaching that this means eternal judgment in hell. But for the believers, it brings eternal blessing in heaven. Jesus' point is that those who perish in such catastrophes are no worse sinners than those who survive. He gives another example. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Why a second illustration? Well, the people of, uh, of Jerusalem and, and Judea looked down on the, the Galileans as inferior. So he gives an example of Jerusalemites who also suffered a catastrophe. To continue his point. But notice, in both instances, in both cases that come forward, he reinforces what the true disaster would be. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He wants that point to cement in their minds, so he says it twice. He reinforces it. Don't View these disasters through your broken theological view of divine retribution and justice, but rather see it through the lens of repentance. Most of the Jewish people were caught up in this works righteousness system because that is what they were being taught by the legalistic Pharisees, who Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs because they're clean, they look clean on the outside, but they're filthy on the inside. So repentance was not an action that they practiced uh, with, with any kind of authenticity. It, it was mostly uh, just the sacrificial system and, and going through the motions. It is not genuine. I mean, think of the, the prayers between the Pharisee and the publican. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this publican and, and how terrible he is. And he's in the back, and the man in the back just tears his robes, and he sees the, 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 the sacrificial system, and he's probably seeing the blood, and he's saying, that's what I deserve. I, I deserve to be slaughtered, and yet you saved me, Lord. 
That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. If you remember back to earlier in chapter 12, as we looked at, that, 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 that hypocrisy, that, that there is a covering up of sin. There is a not dealing with sin. So you put up these false pretenses. And Jesus says, back then in chapter 12, the day will come when all things will be uncovered. So that leaves us with the question, what does repentance look like? It is first a recognition that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. And that we cannot save ourselves. Then repentance says, we reaffirm that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. The Greek word here, metanoia, to turn away from sin. But you don't just turn away and, and turn in some obscure direction. You actually turn away from sin and you turn to Christ. Those killed during their worship in the temple and those killed in the, the tower didn't have time to repent. And thus Jesus' stress on, on, on the immediacy. John the Baptist's opening message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, repentance is a, it's a, it's a prerequisite, a necessary condition for salvation. It's a changing of one's mind, and it's not just on minor issues, but the entire direction of one's life. And we are called to have a life of repentance, showing that it was not just spurious or, or, or false, but that there is genuine confession and, and remorse for having offended our holy God. Then Jesus gives a parable. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And this parable concludes his teaching, this teaching of Jesus that he's been doing since chapter 12, verse 1. Remember, it is still the, the thousands that are gathered that are, uh, as the verse says, trampling on one another. And his point in this parable reinforces his point that everyone is on borrowed time. But this parable works its way out in a few ways. First, it clearly connects to the nation of Israel. Uh, both fig tree and vineyard are symbols of Israel. Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah use that imagery. And it is clear this is Israel's last chance to turn back to God, to, to repent, uh, as we've seen in the previous verses, and accept the Messiah, turning to him recognizing him. And obviously, there were individuals who came out of that, the, the apostles, the disciples, uh, the 3,000 who, uh, who were at Pentecost. But by and large, and certainly from a leadership perspective, Israel rejects even with the mercy and the delay and the patience that was shown to them. And ultimately is cut off in the year 70 AD when the Romans literally left 
no stone on top of another in the temple as Jesus prophesied. And then the Jews were scattered throughout the world. They bore no fruit of repentance. They refused the logos, the word of God. It's similar imagery that we see in the garden. Refusing to accept the word of God and then being cast out, being banished. But there are additional implications to this parable as well. What does it say of the person in the church who comes in week after week and bears no fruit? What does it say about the, the God who says a little bit more time? It says so much about the, the ultimate judgment of God, that, that, that it is ultimate, that it is final. But it also shows us his patience and his mercy. Listen to what Peter says, probably recalling this episode that he witnessed of Jesus' teaching. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God, and that by means of these, the, word, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same time, the word of heaven and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are all done in it will be exposed. Peter is talking about the second coming uh, in, in that section. Jesus is talking about what we would consider an untimely death. But the conclusion is the same. Now, this desire that all reach repentance is not talking about the world at large, but rather that God's elect, that God's people be saved. We don't know who God's elect are. People don't walk around with badges that say that. It'd be a lot easier if they did, but that's not the case. But his will, his desire is that they reach repentance. Therefore, he delays for us. So what is Jesus saying in the parable? What he's saying is that is don't wait until it is too late. Don't sit in the pew and do nothing with no fruit. Living in the same manner as you always have. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the time to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for bearing fruit. Because otherwise, if you play games, you could be like the Galileans. Sadly, I mean that quite literally uh, with the violence in Atlanta. 
Or you could be like the people in the Tower of Siloam. You could be like the tree that bears no fruit. But what about those who have been saved but have no growth? I think this is a warning to all of us. I think we can overshoot this and think, ah, you know, oh, once saved, always saved. But you see, the once saved, always saved is also held in tension with work out your fear and in trembling, in fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. There, there's a balance here, and I think we need to feel this pressure. We need to hear this warning. It's not to scare you of hell, but it's to say, what are you trying to accomplish? Hear the words that are being read and preached. Consider the heart of God, what he desires for you. Consider his patience with you to use you that you would bear fruit in whatever ministry that he has set out for you, that he's uh, created a place for you, that he's placed you in. Be used by God. Understand him rightly as these Jews have failed to do. Respond to his mercy and consider your calling. I know that's easier said than done. But I think we, we, we think of these words and we hear the challenge and, and if the Spirit is in you, then they are challenging you and they are they're, you know, hopefully helping you to see the clear parameters of, of ministry that God has provided for you and pushing you into it and saying, you can go out and do this through my power, through my strength. Be used by me. What a beautiful thing if each and every one of us is being used in that capacity. If we see each other for who we are, as brothers and sisters in Christ, here to equip each other, to build each other up, that we would be able to do these things, that we would be able to take the message out to the places that he's set out for us. How wonderful that would be. Let's pray together. Father, it can be easy to just assume that these passages are just for the lost. I also know not many lost people are just picking up Bibles. And so these are challenge to us, but then encouragement to us to even go out with this message on our hearts and understanding and seeing what we've seen in the past few weeks, that there is a dividing line that will be final, that there will be those in the kingdom and those not in the kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would be continually transforming our hearts. Father, as we seek to live lives of repentance, that, that we would more and more and more be in awe of your glory and in awe of your holiness and, and more and more see the, the wickedness in our own hearts, things that perhaps at early stages in our walk we didn't see. And you're revealing and revealing and revealing these things to us. And Father, that we would strike to, to cut them at the root, that we, would, that we would cut sin off at the root before it bears fruit, and that we would be going to the well of your word and allowing it to dwell in us, and then allowing that word to work through us and empower us in the places that you have for us. Father, help us to see our ministry field. Help us to not be people who sit and and 
and, and barely give off fruit, but people who see the benefit of the work that you have for us, the joy of sharing faith, the joy of encouraging a brother or sister in Christ. Father, would these serve as great motivations for us as we remember what you have done for us as we approach Holy Week. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.